So what is that commentary that you have that on the whole Bible that uh, is the best commentary that you can think of? Now, maybe some said Matthew Henry, and I gave you a clue. It wasn't Matthew Henry. He has a commentary in the whole Bible. Maybe some of you, and, and this is a true test of your Reformed background, you have the entire set of Calvin's commentaries. But see, the Calvin didn't actually write a commentary on every book of the Bible. He didn't write a book on the book of Revelation. He thought it was a closed book that he did not want to actually uh, get into <laughs> too much. Uh, so so who's, who's ready to answer that question? What, what is the commentary that you have? Was it, was were you scratching something or were you <laughs> Okay, well that's good. A companion Bible that has kind of commentary on the side or underneath. A lot of us have study Bibles, which is like a Bible with some commentary and teaching, so forth. How about anyone else? Sermon audio. Oh, that's good. Sermon. You know, Sermon Audio is really a blessing, and and uh, it really is uh, a, a wonderful organization, wonderful thing. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I should have known my wife was going to say that. The Bible itself. Now, how many of you agree with that? Oh, thank you. Good. Cause, because that is the answer. She was. She probably didn't want me to spend more time uh asking that move along yes and that and and so that is my way of saying we are going to be reading a lot of scripture tonight today this morning and tonight when we start talking about the imprecatory psalms or some people say imprecatory some people say imprecatory you say tomato i say tomato hey well Tonight, we're going to be reading a lot of Scripture as well and putting these things in biblical context. So, get ready, get your Bibles out, get your apps open, and we're first of all going to read our main text, which is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And we're also going to read a passage that we've read before, but we're going to review it. First uh, Peter chapter three verses one through seven, and then we're going to add a third passage, Ephesians five twenty two through thirty three. All of these passages approach the same topic from slightly different angles, and together we we develop a composite. And this is an example of of the scripture being its own best commentary. Uh, the Scripture is internally coherent. It doesn't contradict itself. And if there's a passage that needs to be further understood or elucidated, we can find similar passages and help us uh, develop, help ourselves develop a, a better understanding, a more complete understanding of one passage with by reading other passages along the same line. So, first of all, 1 Timothy 2, 8-15. I desire, then, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, 
but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And then moving to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. The Apostle Peter writes this, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And then, turning to our final passage, Ephesians five twenty-two through 33. <coughs> Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And here we end the reading of these passages from God's Word. So we brought three passages, we've read through these three passages. And I would imagine after the second one, the women in the congregation are feeling a little bit beat up. I mean, look at the space devoted in the first two passages we read, look at the space devoted to men, instructions to men. Line or two, and then the whole rest of the passage is about women. Mm. But it kind of balanced out when we read that third passage. 
It says the same thing, but most of that third passage was aimed at men. And I'll tell you guys, tell you all, if you think one side has a greater burden put on it, think about what it means for us men, fathers, husbands, to love as Christ loved and to do what Christ did, to treat our families, our wives, the way Christ treats the church. You think that's not a high standard? You think that's not a hard job? It is. Okay, so we have looked at the relationship of men and women in uh, and and in family and in church, because all, all of these actually have to do with the church, with our behavior in church, the way we relate to one another in church and in family. What is true in the family, what is established in the family, carries over into our life in the church. And we've looked at this relationship in the context of creation, in the context of the fall and the curse last week, and then this week we're bringing it into the context of God's redemptive work in Jesus Christ. That's why that third passage from Ephesians is very important for us, because Paul, it's very interesting, he he goes through all this instruction about men uh, loving and cherishing just like Christ loves and cherishes the church, He says, oh, I'm really talking about Christ and the church. However, you should apply this to husbands and wives. That's a high standard. So today we're looking at this in the context of marriage, or in the context of God's redemptive work. If you read the the kind of the introductory paragraph in in the sermon outline, I said it's, I think it's kind of interesting that the experience of husbands and wives in their married in this in this context of redemption is actually perhaps at least the potential is there to have a more beautiful experience a more powerful experience than adam and eve had in their state of innocence before the fall how many of you have ever had to stop and confess to one another and forgive one another? Adam and Eve before the fall never had that experience, but you know there is a particular joy and relief with confession and forgiveness. And before the fall, they never experienced that. How many of us, when we talk about Christ and the church, and how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, Adam and Eve before the fall never would have thought of that, never would have experienced that. But that is a beautiful thing. In some ways, even a higher level of love, of commitment, of joy and reward. God does not teach us these things in his word about men and women so that we can somehow work our way back to the garden. What God has in store for us is far greater than the garden. Now, we also know something else, that marriage is a temporary thing. Till death do us part, right? We took that vow. Till death do us part. And someone, the Sadducees, asked Jesus that 
kind of trick question, you know, uh, a man had a wife and he dies and she marries his brother and he dies and they go through the whole line of brothers and at the resurrection, which, which brother will be her husband? And what does he say? says, you, you are in error not knowing the Scripture, which I think is always a great comeback for someone who's trying to trick you. You are in error not knowing the Scripture. In the resurrection, they will be like the angels who are neither married or given in marriage. In other words, marriage ends at death. Well, what's in store for us on the other side, though, is actually better. It's actually better. I won't take more time to lay that open. I'll challenge you to think about that, meditate on that. Well, where do we find the redemptive aspect of this relationship in our main text of 1 Timothy chapter 2? It is where Paul says this, nevertheless, she shall be saved through childbearing. Paul is introducing into his discussion about men and women, he's talked about creation, he's talked about the fall, and he's talked now, he brings in the redemptive work of God as the third context in which to consider husbands and wives. She shall be saved. You might think she has a really hard row to hoe as the one who must submit to her husband, as the one who now must submit, even though her nature has been changed to, to, to be independent, to go her own way, to, be, to have a will that is contrary to her husband. And his headship has changed, and now it is, it is not a headship uh, that, is, uh, that is free from sin. But even while she is ten, tendis, tends to go her own way, he will rule over her. There's an implication that the rule of the husband now become is tinged with a, a harshness, an authoritarianness, a lording it over those who are under him. And so you have in the under the fall and the and the the curse, you have an inherent conflict set up between husband and wife, male female. Something has happened in them. Something's happened to them that changes their nature and corrupts their relationship. Yet, the husband is still called to be the head of the family, the head over the wife, and the wife is still called to be the, the helper, the suitable helper, and to submit, show respect for her husband. Nevertheless, she shall be saved through childbearing. Does that mean that if you have children, you will be saved? Well, what about a wife who never has children for some reason? Is, is she lost? No, actually, Paul's not referring to you yourself having children. He's talking about those, one of these archetypal patterns that God established at creation. The woman bears children. Do you remember when God was going down the line after Adam sinned? Adam, what is this you have done? Well, I ate the fruit, but, you know, she gave me the fruit. I was just standing here, innocent as could be. She gave me the fruit. I ate it. Eve, what did you do? Well, the, the serpent gave me the—he t- t- he beguiled me. He deceived me, and I, I ate the fruit, and I gave it to my husband, and 
And then God goes to the servant, serpent, cursed are you. You will crawl on your belly. And then he says, I will put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. The woman, through childbearing, will bring into the world the seed, capital S. And that seed is Christ, and Christ will crush the serpent. That's what Paul is actually referring to. And it kind of becomes clear, too, when he says, if they continue, if they continue in faith and love, what is the words, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, as you truly believe God's Word, as you truly trust in Christ, as you truly believe and put into practice the Word of God, you will be saved. And it is through the function that God intended of the wife, of the woman, to bear the child, that God will bring salvation into the world with the promise of Genesis 3.15 comes the work, God's work of salvation. Even to those who live before the time of Christ, the benefits of salvation are applied to them. Those believers, those saints that lived before the time of Christ, the David, the Abrahams, and even the Adams and the Eves, and the line that descends from them as they trusted in God's promise, as they looked forward to that one who would come and deliver them from Satan. The benefits of Christ's salvation are applied to them. God does not, God is not bound by time. He is not bound by sequence. He is not bound. Everything, perhaps a way to understand this, the eternality of God, is that everything in, the, in, in, in God there is an eternal present. He, the, the, the boundaries of time that we live in, the constraints of time that we experience, simply have no, nothing to do with God. And so God can send his Son into the world at a particular time, but God can apply the benefits of Christ's work to all who believe throughout history, throughout time, even before Christ came as they believe, as they have faith in the promise. Well, the significance of childbearing then for women is a cosmic significance. It's not just about you and your family. This is every, every child that is born ought to be a reminder to us that it is through this function of a woman that God is going to ultimately bring his Redeemer who will crush the serpent's head. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Notice, and the, the wording here is very specific. In the original language, there's no article here. It's not born of a woman or born of the woman. It is born of woman, and that, that lack of the article is, is a, a reflection of the fact that this is a cosmic act. This is a, this is a fulfillment of that, of that archetypal pattern 
that God established with Eve as the one who would bear children. Paul is not referring to a particular woman, but to womankind. Woman is the means of the incarnation of the Son. Creation, fall, redemption. We now live. In fact, as Adam and Eve believed the promise of Genesis 3.15, that there was an ultimate victory for the seed of the woman over the seed of the serpent. The serpent would have his head crushed. As they trust that promise, they then live in the time of God's redemptive work and under the influence of that redemptive work. So even in the Old Testament, we have the redemptive theme being applied to husband and wife relationships. Peter refers, of course, to to Abraham and Sarah, and he tells women living in his day that they are to follow the example of Sarah and, and in a sense, be her daughters, be be the ones who, who look to Sarah as their example, as she, in her relationship with Abraham, reflects uh, a biblical, gracious, uh, uh, understanding of headship and a submission and good works and so forth. Now, I'm not saying, that, ladies, that you have to call your husband Lord. Though, when I think about, well, no. But the action should be consistent with that. The way of life should be consistent with that. Peter is saying this is a, something that God prizes, that this is a a very precious thing, uh, the apostles would say. This is a very precious thing in God's sight. So we live with the pattern of creation, the effect of the fall and the curse, and also God's work of redemption, all at the same time. And God refer, or Peter, Paul refers to all three in his passage in 1 Timothy. Creation, man is the head, woman is the helper. She's the suitable helper that enables and completes Adam so that he can fulfill God's creation mandate and be, as it were, a whole person. Fallen curse, man's headship becomes frustrated. He's still the head, but it becomes frustrated. His own nature becomes corrupted, and he has a a rebellious world and a rebellious creation, including the woman. His headship becomes harsh and conflicted, even while his wife has contrary desires. In redemption, headship is preserved. Grace instructs men to love as Christ loves the church. Grace instructs women to submit as the church submits to Christ. Marriage is a figure of Christ and the church, and the rules governing men and women reflect all three stages of our human experience. And we haven't even gotten into the specifics of First Timothy 2 yet. And we'll, we'll work on that next, uh, next time we come back to this passage. But we're also looking at the other passages that we read today. And I want to actually shift over to the passage in uh, 
in 1 Peter chapter 3, 1-7. After instructing wives, Peter turns to husbands. He says, Husbands, live with your wives with understanding, giving honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. She, she has her place that God established in creation. It is a place of being the helper, the suitable helper. You should honor that. Husbands, honor that. Honor her. And Peter also links the, this to prayer, as does Paul. Paul says, men, I want men to lift up, whole, to pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without anger, without hatred and anger. And then he goes on to women. Peter talks to women first, and then he says, Men, live with understanding with your wives and honor the woman as a weaker vessel. And then he says something because he links it to prayer, just Paul does too. But he links it to prayer, lest your prayers be hindered. How important is it, brothers, and I mean brothers as brothers, men, how important is it to honor the wife, to show honor to her and live with understanding? The inspired apostle says to live out of accord with this instruction may be a hindrance to your prayers. Your prayers may be hindered. In other words, God does not hear, answer. When you, when you pray and your heart is filled with anger, resentment, when there is dishonor in your heart and perhaps being expressed in your actions, when you are not showing understanding, your prayers are hindered. There's something that is going to affect your vital day-to-day -day relationship with God if your relationship with your wife is out of sorts and out of kilter. That's how important it is. Paul uh, Peter also reminds us that husbands and wives are heirs together of the grace of life. This is a bond that exists as a believing husband and a believing wife live together. You are brought together as one flesh, are joint heirs, heirs together of the grace of life. Here's something that Adam and Eve did not experience in their state of innocence. By the way, side note here, this is also a huge reason why, as we're in our younger years and we're single and we're looking for a spouse, a husband, a wife, that we will spend the rest of our life with, this is an important reason why believers should marry believers. Christian young men 
should seek out Christian young women and vice versa, because it is God's intention for you to be heirs together of the grace of life. And when there's an unequal yoke of believer and unbeliever, this statement cannot be true. You're not going to be heirs together of the grace of life. But as you are, as Christian husband and wife, you're going to be growing in grace toward that ultimate goal of eternal life together. Together. And this is this is also getting to the to the heart of in our experience in the context of salvation, a context of God's redemptive work, that we still grow together as one flesh. As one flesh. It is essential that in their heart, in their desire, in their motive, in their worship, in their in, in their relationship, they are both committed to godly living under Christ as Lord and Savior. And then, growing in that grace, they grow closer and closer together. And the two shall be one flesh. There's a sense in which, as you are, uh, when you are married, you are one flesh. It's kind of the objective aspect, but there's also the subjective growth, the life together, and that growth together in grace as you come to experience more and more in life what it means to be one flesh. The Apostle Paul, in our passage in Ephesians, states that husbands are to love as Christ loved the church, that wives are to submit to husbands as the church submits to Christ. That's a tall order, but it's the goal for which we reach. Paul sometimes likened his life to a runner running a race, and my eyes are on the goal. My eye is on the prize at the end of the race. And that's where our sight should be focused on as well. <coughs> to love as Christ love, to submit as the church submits. Do we ever get it completely right in this lifetime? No, we don't, which is why there is forgiveness and confession and restoration. And that, too, is part of the beauty of growing together. In both of these passages, First Peter and Ephesians, the expression of love and submission flows from the grace that we have received— in the marriage, love and submission are also the good works that flow from and prove the presence of saving faith. In these passages, Paul, particularly when he's when it and Peter, when they write to the women, when they're addressing the women, talk about the good works that that actually their their submission to their husband is is part of the good works that they are called to do. 
that immediately puts it in the context of faith and grace. We are not saved by good works, but those who have true saving faith will produce good works. As the Holy Spirit is working in us, as he gives us a new heart and new eyes and new ears, and we believe, we understand, we grow through the work of the Spirit as he applies the saving work of Christ, this also should be, should be evident in the husband way, his husband's way that he loves his wife and in the wife's way that she submits to her husband. That's part of the good works. It's, it's part of what James is talking about. You say you believe. Good. Fine. Wonderful. The devils believe also, and they tremble. No, no, no. We're talking about saving faith, not an intellectual knowledge about some aspects of God's, uh, God and his work. We're talking about saving faith, which is trusting in Christ for my salvation. And the outworking of that saving faith, James would say, must be demonstrated in what you do and how you live. And so if we have believing husbands and believing wives, part of that experience of sanctification, part of that experience of the the good works that flow from justification, especially affects our relationship. God's covenants and God's laws are all about relationships, aren't they? He establishes relationships on, by covenant. He directs our behavior in relationships with his laws. In our prayer of confession today, and this brings together the passage that we read from Psalm 119, where in several of those verses, David writes about the the blessing of having the light of God's Word, the understanding, the wisdom of God's Word, the wisdom of his precepts coming in and being a blessing in his life. In our prayer of confession, I, I, I mentioned that all too often we listen to other, other guides, other sources of quote-unquote wisdom, the world around us especially, and there is probably no more Per, uh, pervasive invasion into our minds that is contrary to God's word than this that deals with this subject of men and women in their relationships together. The Bible says that man is to be a head for the woman, and that Christians, Christian husbands are to model the love of Christ that he has for his church. The world tells us what? What about men? Well, today we talk about toxic masculinity. Brothers, we need to recapture a biblical masculinity, which is not harsh, it's not authoritarian, it's not abusive by any means. A biblical masculinity is modeled on Christ. But to be masculine today is a bad thing. 
the Bible portrays Eve's role and a woman's role as to, to be that suitable helper. If you want to read a beautiful presentation of that, go back to that familiar passage in Proverbs 31. The, 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 the woman who is, is described in, in that passage, and, and she is not a wallflower, is she? She has her own business. She travels. She deals with people. She, she is, is, is industrious. She is doing all this work. But notice something about all the work that she does and all of her engagements, all of her employments and so forth are aimed at the support of her husband and her family and the benefit of the home. And what, is, what does that do for her husband? Well, he is respected when he sits at the gates of the city with the elders of the city. And her husband and her children rise up and call her blessed. She's not a wallflower, but she dedicates everything in her, all of her activities, to the benefit of her family. But what is the world telling women today? Be independent. Marriage, and you've all probably heard these stories and read these these statements from feminist leaders, marriage is a form of slavery. Marriage is nothing more than indentured servitude. A woman should be independent, should seek her own life, have her own career, her own existence, apart from a husband. And all too often we have listened to these voices that are attacking God's truth at a very foundational level. Has, has that brought happiness into our world? Has listening to those voices brought, brought wealth and happiness and stability and joy and glory into our world? No, it has not. It has been destructive. Don't listen to the other voices. This is our greatest challenge, and it is by far the hardest thing to do, I think, is to resist the world, the flesh, and, and Satan himself as he calls us to walk in a different path. And he causes us to doubt God's word. He's still using the same tricks. Did God really say, oh, no, 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 that, that, no, that's not the way to joy and happiness and blessing. Let me show you the better way. Let me show you a, a better way. This is, this is what God doesn't really want you to know. The same lies he told Eve are the lies that he is telling us today, and too many of us are listening and not listening to God as he speaks to us in his word. We're going to leave it there. Next week, we'll, or next time, we will get back into this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, a little more, a little more depth. Creation, fall, redemption. We live in the effects of all three. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would indeed teach us to trust the wisdom of your word, wisdom of its teachings and your commandments, because the ways of the world are the ways of death. And we see it playing out in our lives in a very potent and very striking way. Lord, we ask that you would bless us as we seek to follow you. Teach us to love as Christ loved. Teach us to honor as the church honors its Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.